0: Today we have um, one of our current predoctoral fellows, Nick um, Brie-Gariello, who joined CMSW from the University of Minnesota, where they are a fourth year PhD candidate. Their work focuses on audience and fans, internet celebrity, and digital economies across social media platforms. Currently, their dissertation titled A Heart So True, relational labor and gig economies in the Pokemon Go fandom, specifically focuses on the growth of creative workers within various forms of gig economies on social media platforms. They look at the interrelations between YouTube and Twitter, as well as Tumblr and Patreon, to theorize what forms of work and labor are now the norm <coughs> on specific platforms. Since the Pokemon fandom is understudied, they are trying to also think about the potential access gaps or colonial hauntings where some folks are sponsored by industries and partnered with social media platforms, whereas others are continually exploited for their labor. Nick Bree is also a competitive Pokemon trading card game player, and you can usually catch them at your local league or in regional. <laughs>
1: Been a while. Yes. Well, thank you so much for the introduction. It's well appreciated. Uh, before I get started, regarding pictures for this presentation, the fan artist has been really nice enough to let me use some, obviously, all the public images, but also some private images as well. Um, starting in the latter half with Patreon um, photos, please do not take any pictures, or if you do, do not circulate them online whatsoever. So, Thank you all for attending this evening. And so the title of my talk today is The Good Stuff, The Intersections of Work, Leisure, and Relational Bonding on Tumblr and Patreon. Um, before continuing, there are just two quick things I would like to address. I want to give thanks to the pre-doctoral diversity program for having me here for the entire year, as well as CMS, and my hosts, T.L. Taylor and Ian Condry, um, and also thanking Berkman Klein Center over at Harvard University, where I'm a fellow this year as well. And two, accessibility. If you happen to be low hearing or if I talk in a New York minute, my apologies, but please ask me for an access copy of my script. Um, It's not verbatim, but it might be able to help contextualize a little bit. And I do have an alt text and colorblind friendly version of this presentation for you. Um, Just please come see me after the talk. So. Today is actually Pokemon Day, so it's the 23rd anniversary since the release of Pokemon, so the timing of this talk could not be any better. It's just a little nerd fact that I wanted to throw in before starting this talk. So, for today's agenda, I'm going to give an overview of 23 years of the Pokemon franchise in one slide. I'm going to give an introduction to the phenomenon of Pokemon Go, and then I'm going to segue into an intro of internet celebrityhood micro-celebrity, and relational labor, the significance of this project. And then I'm going into an overview of Pokemon Go's social media influencers, those who have achieved status where they are now partnered with Niantic, the parent company of Pokemon Go. And then I'm moving the latter half of the presentation into really the bulk and heart of this uh, talk. Uh, so discussion of one section will be about Tumblr, uh, I call it And the World Will Turn to Ash, Relational Labor, and Fan Art on Tumblr. And then the next discussion is coming straight from my field notes, quote-unquote, the good shit, relational bonding at the intersections of work, leisure, and support on Patreon. So some of my aims for today, um, they are threefold. I really want us to think through what it means to be a micro-celebrity and internet celebrity and the types of affective and relational labor that one deploys to monetize their content in the age of always being on call. Um, My second goal for today and third goal are closely related. Uh, My second aim is really to think through how unpaid labor and temporal investments provide the building blocks for relational bonding to occur And when I use the word relational bonding or phrase relational bonding, please think of it as molecular bonding if that helps you as a metaphor, so double or triple covalent bonds. If you're not familiar with that, we'll get to that. Um, And my last aim for today is that relational bonding work on Patreon is sustained through the various creator, Patreon interactions and rewards-based system to foster a system of compensation through crowdfunding, although it is very much wrapped up in global neoliberal gig economies so a glossary and overview of today so if you're unfamiliar with um, platforms like patreon just a quick show of hands who has either pledged on patreon or heard of patreon great so for those who are not familiar patreon is really a crowdsourcing platform where content creators can have a supplemental income that's less flexible or unsustainable, I mean more sustainable than YouTube's income. So YouTube very much fluctuates that, even if you have a million million viewers, your videos can be demonetized, which has recently happened to some Pokemon Go um, influencers where they were seen as violating sexual conduct and being not PG-friendly, and thus their videos were all demonetized and their channel was suspended temporarily. Um, So, and I've also included some acronyms here. When I say TPCI, I'm talking about the Pokemon Company International. TCG, Trading Card Game. Shiny, so Shiny in Pokemon hunting um, and in Pokemon Go, it means an alternative color to a certain Pokemon. So Pikachu is normally yellow. It's Shiny variant is more orange tint. And Community Day, these two, the latter two terms, Community Day and Shiny will become important in a few slides. A Community Day is an event that happens once a month for two or three hours um, specific to a certain geographical location. So usually it would happen in the U.S. around uh, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. And it's where one Pokemon is selected each month and then it becomes extremely easy to capture and its shiny or alternative color form is really simple to capture. Here is my um, buildup of 23 years of Pokemon in one slide. So I hope I do it justice. Uh, released in 1996, the Pokemon Anime has recently hit its 1000 episode back in April of 2018. Um, also, Pokemon is very much on a variety of handheld games, mobile games, etc, with na- now being on the Nintendo Switch, the most recent console by Nintendo. Um, and also, Pokemon really does extend into the realm of competitive, um, and eSports so scholarship and prize money exceeds about three million US dollars each year um, over here towards the bottom we have the winner of the last Pokemon TCG uh, championships uh, f- uh, one uh, Robin Schultz won $25,000 in back in I want to say August of 2018 so with that quick quick history I'm giving an introduction of Pokemon Go. Many of us probably remember July 2016 as like, mm-hmm. everyone was in the streets, standing. Why are they like standing like in the street and flicking their phones? Pokemon Go most likely, or maybe Tinder, who knows? <laughs> but it is, it's playable on iOS and Android, but the general concept of Pokemon Go is to catch as many and very often the same Pokemon um, in order to evolve it into a stronger Pokemon or better looking Pokemon. You're able now to make friends with Pokemon, Uh, I'm sorry, you're able to make friends with other people and you're also able to take certain AR images of your own Pokemon as well. Uh, You're also, so there are regional exclusive Pokemon meaning that the Mr. Mime Pokemon and I think that one's pretty common because many of us have seen the trailer, you can only capture that one in Europe. So you either have to go to Europe or have a friend who travels, or wait for a special migration event that would allow it to come to the US, which has not happened in three years almost. Um, and spinning Pokestops, so these little things here, they favor urban environments much more over rural environments. So spinning those Pokestops will give you rewards in game, etc. And then you flick the Pokeball on your screen in order to capture a Pokemon at a certain percentage rate. The rarer the Pokemon and the higher its evolution line, the harder it is to capture. And lastly for this little introduction is, well, this is Vaporeon back in July of 2016. This was one of the most sought after Pokemon and I'm gonna see if this link plays. There was a stampede in Central Park where people really wanted to capture it. (laughs) It, Can we hear? There's a Vaporeon that spawned
2: right there, so everyone's
3: running <laughs> <laughs> you tell me how, did, how did other people know that it was oh there? Like, did you get like, a notice or something? <laughs>
1: it would appear on your screen. Oh and, my God. and at this time, many people were using third Party apps to know where the rare Pokemon was to filter out the comments. And everyone can see it on their screen. And everyone gets yeah, there's every.
4: <laughs>
3: okay. So wait, just so so the so essentially everyone's using a third party to know like hey everybody go to Oops. Central Park there's a rare Pokemon there not necessarily within the app.
1: Uh, so the app was very buggy upon release. Oh here we. Go. Sorry, I lost my place with the PowerPoint. Yeah, thank you. Sorry, sorry about that. So during the release of Pokemon Go, many people were using third party apps in order to find the rare Pokemon because the tracker in-game was actually broken. So many people were just like, okay, I'm just going to use a third party app regardless if it was against the terms of service. No one got banned. Almost no one got banned. (laughs) But, okay, and then finally, there we go. So there was also just a lot of buzz around Pokemon Go and public safety over there. This is my home university sending out, please do not wander into the streets, do not go onto private property, etc. Because there was many reports of people being hit by a car, or also having the police called, or people being um, robbed because people would put the lures to attract more Pokemon down by an alley at night and people would go there. Uh, There's me at the Mall of America with permission from this grandmother to uh, we tried to capture Lapras together. She got it, I didn't. Not bitter, but so back in, <laughs> back in summer 2016, like it was fun to be around the Mall of America because there was a series of Pokestops that you can just circle the mall and you would hit every five minutes. So, uh, and even the 2016 presidential candidate, we all know the famous Pokemon go to the polls. So I will not bore us with that anymore. But it's not all just fun and games as well. There is very much a racialized and gendered aspect behind Pokemon Go and being able to play it. So Omari Akil, back in 2016, wrote when he was just playing Pokemon Go and wanted to capture Jigglypuff, which is pictured over there, that he saw a disturbed white woman look at him because he was pacing up and down the same street three or four times. And with the recent murders by the police of black bodies in, in the U.S., it became very much that like playing this game can result in like my life being ended or in my harm. Cassius Adair um, writes about Pokemon Go in Charlottesville after towards the one-year anniversary uh, of the Unite the Right ra- rally. Uh, more so that uh, there was a community day that I mentioned earlier that happened on the one-year uh, uh, anniversary where people were urged to stay home because there was uh, threats of another Unite the Right rally and you know nazis taking to the streets and uh, rioting in the streets. Um, and more so that a lot of Pokestops in Charlottesville are very much named after, and I'm using the quotes here, Confederate war heroes, and as well as uh, uh, slave graveyards as well. So very, and Niantic responded to a request to postpone Community Day for Charlottesville by just denying it. And then finally, in Milwaukee, uh, Wisconsin, this was all returned back, I wanna say, in April of 2018 or May of 2018. There was temporary ordinances in the city that closed down parks for Pokestops where if you tried to spin a Pokestop after 5 or 6 p.m., you wouldn't be allowed to collect any in-game rewards because too many people, too many people were complaining that, oh, there's all these kids out in the streets late at night and they just didn't want people in the park at, after a certain time, so. Okay. So, as of June 2018, there has been 17 recorded deaths for Pokemon Go and 56 injuries. Uh, more so, a lot of the face groups I, um, Facebook groups that I have followed since 2016 have also mentioned where, at Grand Army Plaza in New York, oh, has the NYPD, like, told you to go home or that the park is closed, and very much so it's uh, people of color who comment and say that like, I was told to leave the park, whereas presumably white folks are saying that like, oh, I was invited to actually play with the NYPD. This was back in the beginning of 2016. I don't think the NYPD plays anymore. I don't think as many people play, but still, this is uh, a very much Uh, disconnection or discord and who was being mistreated and who was being policed while playing Pokemon Go. There was also an Asian grandfather uh, who was killed outside of Virginia Country Club because he wasn't able to speak English and not able to say that he was just trying to capture a Pokemon. He played Pokemon Go in order to be closer to his grandchildren as well. So very much so Pokemon Go has these uh, uh, harsh consequences for certain bodies and that is something I wanted to highlight before going on into the origins of this project and celebrityhood. So as someone who has been part of the Pokemon uh, community since 1999, I bring now 20 years of knowledge and personal experience to the table when thinking about Pokemon. I always like to discuss how Pokemon is not merely about the virtual creatures or the fun and games we see here, but it's about the people who play it and the people who have certain feelings and political emotions behind it. For me, growing up in a working class family and living paycheck to paycheck, the first thing I remember about my dad when seeing him for the first time after he was incarcerated was that he and my mom wanted to pawn their wedding rings so I could have a Game Boy Pocket and a Pokemon Blue cartridge. I contextualize this moment in my life with Sarah Ahmed's concept of stickiness. When thinking of emotions and their value and how they generate, some things simply stick and adhere and thus have become ingrained with a person. So we can think of happiness here as having this positive value. When I think about this, it's generally associated with positive feelings. Ahmed also talks about the shame that gets blanketly attached to certain groups of people, especially post 9-11, and that anger by mostly white folks towards um, all, to all Muslims have really, there is a generated negative value there. The queer child Ahmed also talks about as, is a child that has sat, like sadness and people simply just want that child to be happy. So I say this to say there's this mandate of happiness that seems really imperative when it comes to uh, when it comes to thinking about emotions, thinking about playing games, thinking about everyday interactions. So sometimes it is a positive experience, like this with my parents, willing to give up so much so I had a moment of glee, but then other times it's also a negative experience because it's the reminder of the drug abuse and the violence that ran rampant in my household that when my parents got angry at me one day for wanting to play dress up and not playing whatever else I was supposed to play, they threw my Game Boy with the Pokemon cartridge attached, thus severing that happy memory that I have. So I bring this story up because Pokemon for many folks just sticks, perhaps not as severe or case in point as me and not as such with a mixed bag of emotional stickiness, but it sticks with them into adulthood and now into their professional careers, As we have seen, there's really a growing trend of professional gamers and Poketubers, YouTubers who produce Pokemon content on YouTube, who are doing this for a living as their full-time job, have given up college, have given up accounting jobs in order to do YouTube and Pokemon full-time. So people are able to make a living off of these Pokemon games, now either through play, on-demand content, or live streaming their gameplay. So indeed, there are content producers like Mystic Seven, Pokemon Master Holly, and Reversal, who I'll show in a little bit, who, produce, who live stream, who show how to capture rare Pokemon, and who actually get to travel with Niantic and travel and capture Pokemon, like let's say on the Eiffel Tower. So bringing this kind of exclusive content that is behind closed doors for many of their general audience. And then there is Surface Age, who is a main focal point of my talk, um, who, does a lot, who is a Southeast Asian based artist, who does a lot of this creating original characters, expanding the storyline that, that Niantic and TPCI has so much neglected. And for me here, I really want to also focus that the scholarly significance is that there is really a shift here in content production to really demarcate a shift away from emotional labor as this one-time paid occurrence, as Hochschild has argued, into what has Nancy Boehm and Ana Patios have argued that creative fans and influencers have constant communication and relationships and sometimes even friendships with their audience and this forms the relational labor. And then as I suggest, it goes a step further into relational bonding where even if this work isn't being done or someone's not getting, let's say uh, a paid or VIP access, they'll still want to support their favorite creator just because they're so invested in their success. So, some key words before moving on. I've mentioned micro Heavily so, I'm drawing from Terry Semph's work on microcelebrity, where she studied cam girls. And micro-celebrity is, for me, is thinking much more so as small niche communities where it's not as their name is not as widespread or well known. So, like Surface Sage, for instance, I categorize as a micro celebrity, where they are pretty much known in the Pokemon community, but in this general audience, probably wouldn't be as well known as, let's say, uh, Ninja, for instance, who plays Fortnite. So that's where I get into internet celebrity or influencer. Someone, and I draw from Crystal Abaddon's work here, that an influencer's impact can be like. They're known in the bedroom, they're known at the kitchen, they're known everywhere. Like Ninja, who plays Fortnite, is pretty much one uh, the first esport person on the ESPN cover, ESPN magazine cover, has become pretty much like someone who is very well known by a majority of people. So there, that is the difference there. One is more small niche community, the other one can expand outside of their niche community. But then again, they're not also so clear cut. There can be very much hybrids where In a Pokemon community, they're a well-known name. They're a Pokemon Go influencer, but then the general audience population won't know them outside of Pokemon Go. So they're an influencer in Pokemon spaces, but not in the general population. They wouldn't have any buying power, per se, for like, let's say, you and you, but more so for me. So when I'm talking about internet celebrity, I really want to um, borrow these terms and how Crystal Abedin really defines them. She th- she uses the words exclusivity, exoticism, exceptionalism, and everydayness, the four E's as I like to remember them by. For this presentation, I really want to focus on exceptionalism and everydayness, but exclusivity is really thinking about what I mentioned earlier. How for an internet celebrity, they're able to provide content of capturing a Pokemon on the Eiffel Tower that like you and me probably couldn't do. Uh, for exceptionalism, it's really these unusual, these talents that someone might have. So surface age, as you saw in the opening slide, being able to draw original characters, being able to make web comics, something that sets them apart from everyday layperson, that gives them a type of technical capital. And then everydayness, being able to connect their life with our life and being able to uh, communicate with us and create a sustained social relationship over time. Uh, yes, so again, getting back to relational labor, Nancy Bame has also made six excellent points in which that relational labor moves away from just pure emotional labor in the sense that There is constant communication. There is a time and effort there. uh, And there's also like boundary making. So saying that I'll share that, oh, I'm having my morning cup of coffee and I'm just doing some work in progress sketches for you all, but then not sharing like, oh, I'm going on vacation because well, I've been working 60 to 80 hours a week. So I need the time off because I'm about to burn out. So that's that kind of sense of boundary making and marking that happens there. And then, to move on, you probably are wondering who are these Pokemon Go influencers that I've been mentioning. Well, here's four out of five of them. And I say four out of five for a good reason, because one failed. So over on the top left, you have Pokemon Master Holly. She's well known for her pop-up shops and doing AR photos of Pokemon that are very unique. That's a type of exceptional talent that I was talking about. Uh, Mystic7 over there, whose tagline is sponsored by his mom's credit card, he's the one who captured uh, Mr. Mime on the Eiffel Tower. Um, Over to your top right, you have Reversal, based in the Netherlands. Uh, He is also known for very much live streaming a lot of Pokémon content. And then you have Trainer Tips, or Nick, who is known for giving very just helpful tips about capturing Pokémon, about how to get gyms or get more rewards in-game. And then over here we have Colton Robtoy. So during my data collection, I thought, I like looked at people who were making Pokemon content and said, okay, these are going to be people who are probably going to be famous or be something in the community. And I was right for four out of five of them. Um, Can't be right on everything, I guess. But for Colton Robtoy, he actually reached out to me and was like, oh, I noticed you follow Mystic Seven or Brandon, who's up in the top middle. And he was like, "Oh, you should like follow me. I'm planning this big Pokemon Go around the world trip. No one else is doing it." So he set out a schedule of like each country he would visit. He set out a uh, six to eleven p.m. schedule each day, saying he would sleep from eleven to six. It was very organized and it seemed very legit. He didn't make it after about like three months. He's still with us, but because I realized, anyway, bad joke. Uh, <laughs> so he had some. He had some videos of him in Brazil and Argentina, and I think he made it to South Africa, but then after that, he ran out of money for his trip. His videos were only making about 200, 300 views each time compared to tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of views. Uh, So in order to fund the trip in the beginning, um, he sold Snapchat spectacles. Uh, If you remember them, you were able to wear these glasses to take live video and then upload it to your Snapchat. So he would buy, stand online each day, buy two of them because you were limited to two, then sell them for double the price, and that's how he funded the first three to four months of his trip. He was saying um, in some Twitter um, DMs, he was just saying to me like, oh, like, I'm gonna like, get the money in order to fund the rest of my trip because this is like, I'm gonna be big, I'm gonna be famous because no one else is doing this. Long and behold, I can't find his YouTube videos anymore. He's not big, he's not famous, he's doing cryptocurrency now, and so. We can talk about that if you want, but. but moving along, I just also want to say that everyone but Colton has been now sponsored by Niantic, as well as over there is Yamada. Um, he's also sponsored by Niantic. And I'm like thinking what happens like when Pokemon Go YouTubers, they become influencers of their own, but then are subsumed by the corporation, by the company as well. Do they become sellouts to their fans and actually, no. Many of us probably remember the Pokemon Go Fest of 2016. It turned into the Fire Island Festival for nerds. It was a total bust. Cell phone service went down. You weren't allowed to bring sunscreen, umbrellas. You had burning babies. You had burning me. Um, pale as hell, so I burn easily. So anyway, and there was refunds for that as well. But. No one really were there was such loyalty attached by the fans that people still stuck out Even though that all the producers had to say good things about Pokemon Go Fest saying Well, they tried they learned from their lesson. They're going to do better next time, which they actually did But still I want to say if you've noticed here There's a trend of where people are where um, they're mostly from this is mostly US and Europe um, centric content with only even though Pokemon originated in Japan. There's only one um, Pokemon Go influencer from Japan that is really known in English circles. So much so, it, it, and but thinking about this was a web series Pokemon Go travel. They had four episodes where they highlighted the lives of your favorite Pokemon Go YouTuber. And I really wanted to like draw from Andre Lord here when she says like it's always important to remember the placement that people of color, that women of color are put like in academic conferences or. We can expand that into television sitcoms or web series sitcoms. The one, the one non-US, European centric focused person was placed at the last and had the last 10 minute clip, whereas everyone else was given 15, 20 minutes because since he doesn't speak English fluently, he was still subtitled, whereas no one else was also subtitled, even though you were still able to understand him. So just thinking about how Niantic also puts and organizes certain social media influencers too now. So, with that, I finally want to get to surface age. So the fan artist that I've been um, working with and have studied for two years now. Um, and to prelude this, my data collection actually fell outside of the Tumblr ban. So during Q and A, if you do have questions about the Tumblr adult content ban, please ask me. And also, um, starting in a few slides, please do not take any pictures because those are under a private setting. I will give another warning when that comes. But I argue that Surface Age has achieved micro-celebrity status, but is not an influencer, is not sponsored by Niantic, and is one of the few people that is popular in the Pokemon Go circles outside of the US and Europe. This was Surface Age's, or Surfie's first post about Pokemon Go, it was about Blanche's gender. Blanche, who is seen in the middle, they are one of the uh, team, um, team leaders in the Pokemon Go game. Uh, Surfy was really trying to promote non-binary identity and live up to the concept artist's creation of Blanche as a non-binary or whatever gender you wish to see them as. So many people were commenting and replied saying like, well, why do you see Blanche as non-binary and not as feminine because the name Blanche? And Surfy just responded like with a comment, Uh, with not only the re re reposting of this webcomic, but saying like, does it matter on how you see Blanche? Now. Their first viral post was this webcomic here. So pretty much so, this was all of the team leaders. So you have Candler here, um, Spark here, and then Blanche, who is in blue again. And then you have the game's prota- um, antagonist, uh, Team Rocket, who notably in a red R, black Sure. And then you, you might also notice this character over here is called Noir. This was originally developed character also in the opening slide by Surfie, who is actually Blanche's twin. It's kind of a whole good twin, evil twin dynamic going on here. But then again, this was the first comic that came really to become viral, made Surfie known within the Pokemon Go community. And people wanted to ask for permission, like, can I fan dub your work, like this comment, and like animate it, make it into a GIF, like for my YouTube channel, as long as I give you credit. And Surfie was like, yeah, sure. Like, this is yours as long as you give me credit. Like, I'm really happy that like this is spread. And then the virality was stolen. So by a very much like popular uh, Pokemon Go fan page at the time, um, they said that there was no way to credit the original artist. Surfy watermarks all of their work, and it's also hyperlinked where you can just click it and it'll give, put it back to their Tumblr page. They said, well, we tried reverse image searching. We couldn't find anything. Many fans of Surfy came to their defense saying, there's a watermark in the left corner and this ensued into Surfi's response of like if you're going to use someone who's not getting paid an unpaid artist's work for this like just at least have the decency to give them credit and to divert traffic away not just to your page but to my page as well and then also responding to a lot of comments saying well it's just fan art you don't really own anything that's not necessarily true as we've seen time and time again yes the person might not own the original characters but any innovation any creativity or any new characters developed during under the artist's guise would technically be theirs would be their innovation and be their own creative work and their own creativity so it's really important here to see a lot of fans really liked surfy during this and wanted to see the progression of comics like this this was a one-time thing and then turned into, uh, Surfy called it shit posting. Whenever Surfy was bored, like, oh, I'll do a quick sketch, and by quick six to eight hours, in order to share with my audience to build more fans and build more of a base. People actually wanted a webcomic, something more long-term, and said, like, how can we like crowdfund you? How can we support you long-term in order for you to do this? Because we know you have a real job, but we still want the art. And people were like saying, "Can we do a GoFundMe? Can we do something?" And Surfy was very adamant during a lot of the time, saying like, "Well, you could just buy me a cup of coffee," and gave the link to copy, uh, like a digital tip jar, in order just to buy me my morning cup of coffee before I go to work. And I'll still still do this like freelance stuff when I have time. And then two months later, we have the webcomic series being being published, and the world will turn to ash. So it is. Everyone has access to this on Surfy's Tumblr, but then Surfy was very much, like, there was a quick change in debate like why from, no, I don't feel right for anyone really paying me for fan art to, okay, I need to do this full time now, or at least do it as a second job. And in our interview, Surfy responded to that, really saying, well, quote unquote, when you go viral, it's your now or never moment. I knew I would never get another chance to keep my popularity in Pokemon Go, and all the ask and Tumblr kept pushing me to do it. People wanted to pay me. I don't know how I feel about that still, but I'm like, okay, I'm doing it. And I think that's really important. Like, people really wanted to pay Surfy for something that they were very exceptional at. They were able to bring everydayness that the Pokemon Go game itself wasn't bringing. And like we saw, those are qualities of internet celebrity and can be qualities of micro-celebrityhood as well. So these are the depictions by Pokemon Go Niantic of the gym leaders, as we see here. And then these are the depictions and pronouns of the gym leaders as to Surfy. So there is a different creativity. There is a different extension of a storyline that has been very much so not used by Niantic. So a lot of times, yes, okay. So Surfy was really um, a lot, given a lot of unpaid work for this webcomic to really start up and the world on Tumblr. So when asked like, how many hours a week would they spend on it, they, they commented saying, I was spending 20 to 30 hours, sometimes 40 hours a week on the comic. I couldn't justify that over my full-time job of 40 to, uh, 40 to 50 hours a week. I had to make it productive. I decided to make a Patreon. And so starting from the next slide, please don't take pictures. Um, but yes, this make it productive is so wrapped up in neoliberalism in the sense that like anything you do in your everyday life, if it's just a hobby, well, why aren't you making money out of it? Why aren't you able to make money out of your emotions? Uh, let's say, why can't you make money out of your house if it's not being used? Why can't you make money out of cuddling if you're good at it, etc. So there are very much these services that neoliberalism says, well, you can offer anything and make it productive. But then also, and this is when we get into what Surfy likes to call the good shit and being able to produce content that they're getting compensated for finally. So on November, 2016, um, towards the end, Surfy makes a Patreon. So still working 40 to 50 hours a week as a software developer. And at this time is devoting about 25 to 30 hours a week to art and wasn't being compensated via Tumblr. So what Patreon does is um, give someone something productive to show for it by having a steady income each month by, let's say I want it, and I am a Patreon of Surfy since November of 2016, Um, I donate $10 a month to Surfy so I get access to level three rewards, which I'll talk about in the next two slides. But then like you get access to certain rewards at the end of each month that Surfy decides to give out, such as wallpapers, process videos, which I'll show. But so Surfy has so far, since about March of 2017, has not dipped under 1000 US dollars a month for making Pokemon webcomic art. And the inner workings of Patreon here is that, uh, so barring for one month, this has been the fee structure for Patreon, where Patreon themselves take a 5% fee, then there's a 5 to 10% processing fee, so the creator would see, receive about 85 to 90% of your pledge. So if I donate $100, which I don't have, but if I donate $100, the creator should receive a minimum of $85. In December of 2017, Patreon tried to change the fee structure but was met with very much resistance by creators and the pledges alike. Many content creators lost their pledges because the fee structure started charging an individual 35 cents fee for every pledge you had. So if I had 10 pledges, that would probably be $3.50 if I can do math. So that would be on that fee did not exist before. And many people said, well, I'm trying to donate $1 here and there, but now that $1 is turning into $1.35, and that adds up very quickly. So um, but this fee structure has been reverted back as of, I wanna say, February of 20, um, 2018 because, again, very much met with resistance. And then they, Patreon themselves allowed everyone to re-pledge to anyone who they de to during that one-month time period. So Patreon here really, I wanna say, serves as this crowdfunding website that has allowed musicians, artists, and other content creators like Surfy to, I'm just going back a slide here, to generally receive 85% of their total, their total pledges each month. So, and I see all of this way as really like this crowdfunding through Patreon. So doing that unpaid labor I talked about briefly with Tumblr and then moving into Patreon, moving into something like a digital chip jar or crowdsourcing as a way to demarcate a shift from relational building that they did on Tumblr to relational bonding for a sustained second full-time um, job income that occurs on Patreon. So, and I use this term relational bonding and relational bonding work as analytical, as analytical lenses in two modes. It really expounds on Nancy Bames and Anne Patios' um, work on the use of relational labor as the intimate connection that creative workers and marginalized workers undertake in precarious global neoliberal economies. And second, this relational bonding functions as a metaphor to chemistry, as I've mentioned earlier, where it's harder to sever things that have built up over time unless there is a dramatic shift by, let's say, a platform such as the fee structure change that I opposed, where people were de-pledging. So thinking of, or how humans have contributed to the depletion of ozone, there has to be a severe interaction to sever the relational bonds that have developed over time. That's something that I really hope gets across throughout this presentation. And I argue how relational bonding work on Patreon is sustained through the various creator, Patreon interactions, and rewards-based system to foster a system of compensation through crowdfunding under global neoliberal gig economies. And here, I offer four strategies in how this is done. First is the tiered personalized content. I mentioned this earlier that Surfy has three levels of uh, content. Level one is $1 or more. This was taken back in 2018, so they had 113 people pledging $1 to $4 a month. They had 124 people pledging $5 to $9 a month, and 62 people, one who's me, uh, pledging $10 or more a month. And all of this adding up to more than 1000 to $1,100 a month. But based on what you give, you're getting certain VIP access that you don't get on Tumblr. So you might still see all of the And the World Will Turn to Ash comics, but you don't see the the behind-the-scenes labor, which many fans really want to see. So for $1 a month, you'll get a wallpaper. For $2 a month, you'll get wallpaper, work-in-progress shots, and some not safe for work art as well. Uh, And then for level 3, you'll get the process videos, as well as artist talks. So if you really want to learn how to draw, it'll show you step-by-step or give you some analytical framework in order to say, like, this is how you would draw an environment for this scenario, for instance. Strategy one also continues to monthly rituals that we as a community get to vote and see the rewards beforehand at the end of the month, we get to vote on a wallpaper. So Surfy will usually provide three to five options and we'll do a quick sketch of each and then the majority rules. In case of a tie, Surfy will just do vote. And then also we see a rewards preview that how at the end of each month, there'll be a little bundle package, a zip file that is sent to everyone based on their level of support. And so just saying that like, oh, hey guys, I'm doing all of the rewards now. So like if you pledge, December, $10, you'll get that reward the first week of January, so the month after. But I think here you'll see two slides. Here you'll see October, two pictures, sorry. October 2017 and September 2017. But the dates that they were posted are Christmas of 2017, so two months later, and November, late November of 2017, about two months later also for that. This has become a continual thing for Surfy where they are late on giving rewards, about two to three months behind on rewards. Now one might think, well, if you're two to three months late to your job or like consistently doing a bad job for two to three months, you'll get fired or you'll lose your following. Surfy's following besides the $1 level didn't really budge or go down. That made me think then like, why are people sticking around? How did this relationship develop and how is it so strong that people are sticking around? That brings us to strategy two constantly updating and apologizing to us. <laughs> so checking in, providing like, oh hey, I'm doing these work in progress shots. Like I'm still doing the work. Don't worry, the work is getting done. But like I'll just shit post in the meantime to keep you guys appeased and to hopefully like get around to finishing the reward packages. So very much so like would just show us like oh working on the reward. Oh I'm still alive. I just took a day off like sorry about that oh, here's everything I did for you all in 2017. I gave you 12 unique wallpapers during the year of 2017. Like, please forgive me for being so behind on getting them out. And then audiences would also like comment, like patrons themselves would comment saying like, well, I might be in the minority here, but I don't care about the rewards. I would still donate to you, even if I didn't get the rewards, because like, I just wanna support you and your artwork. Or "I I feel like you've taken on too much Don't worry, whenever the rewards come, they come. We're here to support you. So being able to still make $1,100 a month and not like give out anything or any VIP access besides maybe one or two shit posts per se or whatever, like that still had me thinking like routinely updating and apologizing for being behind on work, which is something many of us probably relate to, especially in academia is It's something that you are accustomed to. And it might also, and I'm just showing some random updates and extra pictures as well, saying that again, become a continual thing, but routinely updating folks and saying that like, okay, I will get to it. It becomes a way of bonding with people and connecting to their everyday because they know that like, yes, like I'm also behind on my work. So, and you're doing a lot too. You have a full-time job and you're doing this artwork still. So you must be behind. It's okay. I'll wait. And then, but then what makes the top tier people still stick around? And I wanna, that moves into my third strategy of that. The top tier rewards provide such an intimate connection where you're getting, um, so here we have artist talk where if you're interested in learning how to, let's say for this month of May, 2018, you can make environments related to a college dormitory room. And you have to think about the character's personality. You put yourself into that character situation then you learn about the layout and proportions you want, and then, um, and then you would get into sketching it, inking it, coloring it, providing the shadows, making it as real as possible too. So showing the step-by-step process for the top tier content. And since ha- they've been doing this for quite a long time, people are like, okay, you give a lot of time and effort into this, so I'm gonna continue supporting you even if you are two to three months behind um in or- instead of giving rewards uh because surfy was about i want to say three months behind at one point um gave us all a quick patreon sketch saying so if you were level two or three you would get your own individual sketch that would take only about two hours instead of the regular six to eight hours and this was done for about 120 people so a lot of extra for people who wanted it so i don't know if all 120 people wanted it but let's say 100 wanted it about 200 hours were then devoted into giving out Additional compensation for not having these rewards. This was a sketch I requested, and I told Surfy that please put it on your Tumblr so to divert more traffic to Patreon as well. And then finally, uh, the speed painting. So I'm going to show these at the end of the talk just for time, and I'm only going to show like clips of them. Uh, so up top, we have one process video of the finished pro- product and then the other one from beginning to end. Both of them are from beginning to end, but I'm just showing one was take one screen capture at the end, one at the beginning, and using Clip Studio for their work. Um, so again, as Surfie has, argu- uh, has said, many times sketches can take 30 minutes, but then for something like this, this can take anywhere about 10 hours to make and these process videos are usually these speed painting videos are sped up about 32 to 64 times because no one's going to watch a six-hour video but you'll watch a 10-minute clip uh we're going to pass on that for now and then finally the last strategy is surfy was able to make a pop-up shop back in june july of 2018 so all of their work for about two years uh uh accumulated into like a pop-up shop it was a real risk for surfy during our interview they said because like. They weren't sure how international shipping works. I don't know if I'm going to lose money on it, but I feel like I'm secure enough with my fame right now that people want keychains, people want more materials from me besides just artwork. So here we have a uh, popular uh, Pokemon Natsu who is named Dave by Surfy. And then we have keychain sketches as well where if you were interested, you rec- you can request a keychain and then it would be fully colored. You can also for the first time and This was uh, given permission to share, purchase not safe for work art prints and have them for your own personal use. And then also asking the general audience, like, how the heck do I ship this to Canada? Because Canada has weird shipping policies apparently from the Philippines. So asking people, how do I ship things? So very much so there's been these communal ties over time that have developed. And this brings me to my last point before showing the process videos, that micro-celebrity really still has a culture of burnout, maybe much more so than influencer because if you have a small group of 200 to 300 people following you compared to millions, if you just go off the grid for two or three months, those people might not be there anymore. And so Surfie has done this for two years now in July of each year, 2017 and 2018, has paused pledges. And when I asked, why do you think you're gonna continue doing this? Surfie responded saying, it was a choice between getting some rest and getting funding from Patreon for the month of July. I was at the point which, where if I didn't do the former, I would have trouble doing the latter. I paused for July 2017 and 2018, I think. I think I'm going to do this each year because my Patreons are so supportive of my breaks. I lose $1,100 or so for this month, but in the long run, I don't burn out. And in the long run, they're still able to make over $10,000 additional a year by pausing their pledges for a month and by still keeping their audience like in contact. Because even though this is paused, they'll still post an update about like their life and everything else. And then finally, I want to just end with a post-colonial dilemma in the sense that surfing not being based in the US or Europe has a hard time going to like artist workshops that would really help one cultivate their fame or even be maybe signed into an influencer agency that are mostly UK and US based. So maintaining celebrityhood, particularly meaning micro-celebrityhood, status is not really only about the relationships that have developed but about delivering a mindset to the audience and delivering that like delivering one's best self as like Serfie has ar- uh, has said where they're really at their funnier when they're rested and whatnot. These are just a quick reminder of my takeaways. Again, really hope I got across what it means to be a micro-celebrity, an internet celebrity, thinking about unpaid labor that occurred on, and uh, t- temporal investments that occurred on Tumblr, and then transitioning to how this relational bonding has occurred on Patreon. Um, in order to sustain these relationships, even when work or rewards or VIP content is not being done. Uh, Even though this is let's Q&A and chat, let's pause on that for a minute because I do wanna share the process videos that survey has allowed me to share. I will show Showtime first. more so towards the end because we're not watching 15 minutes sadly so we'll watch the last two minutes towards the finishing product from beginning to end and this is the final product that gets packaged to Patreons
5: Dear, but my
1: And that is the finished product that gets packaged out. I was going to show a second one, but for the sake of q and A, I I'd rather hear much more from you. I will conclude there. Yes. Thank you. And also, uh, please say your name uh, when you ask a question so I can try to learn it.
3: Uh, I'm Sultan Shereef. Um, I was wondering if you, because uh, I remember that summer of 2016, and, and there were a lot of people playing who like, weren't Pokemon fans. So I'm curious as to, like, uh, and then uh, there was a game right before, Ingress or something?
1: Ingress, yep. Yeah, and so uh, at least in L.A., a lot
3: of people were playing that. So, like, do you think, did you look at sort of the popularity of that precursor that might have brought people in who weren't actually fans of Pokemon, and then at what rate did those people drop off once that, like, initial craze was over?
1: Yes, so great question. So for Ingress, a lot of the... I forgot what they were called on Ingress. I think they were like portals or some type of meetup stop where it was very, all of the Pokestops were pretty much migrated to, all of the Ingress portals were migrated to Pokemon Go. So pretty much it had a very similar layout and then Pokemon Go started adding more Pokestops based on what they missed from uh, Ingress. So the popularity more so came from people who played Pokemon, let's say, who knew the first generation from 1996 to 1999 and didn't really know past that, would just like to capture it. And the, the popularity was a good one to two months. I would say pretty much uh, July and August. The summer of 2016 was pretty much Pokemon Go focused. And then the, the popularity slowly started fading because there was one too many bugs to not a real tracker system to track Pokemon, and then you started to get banned for using third party apps for tracking Pokemon when Niantic wasn't providing anything for you to find it. So besides real fa- real fans in scare quotes like, or people who just grew up with maybe knowing the first generation of Pokemon, that quickly like a lot of those people like waned off and said like, okay, but then even though people who are fans would often comment to Surfy, for instance, as well as Pokemon Go YouTubers and say, oh, like, I don't really play Pokemon Go often. I just like to still watch your content because you're telling me what's going on in the game without me having to play it. So I'm able to watch you for an hour or two hours, but I don't have to play Pokemon and capture Pokemon for one or two hours because I don't want to do that. So yeah, that's pretty much about like, the popularity did resurge back this August, I want to say, because they added friends. So it took about two years to add friends into Pokemon. That was fun. So because now since you were able to trade with each other, you didn't have to go to Europe or India or New Zealand in order to capture a regional exclusive Pokemon because that's expensive. And now if you have friends who did it, you can just trade uh, for their Pokemon as well. So that's when the resurgence happened. And I would say it's pretty much like, it's still a popular top 100 app in the iOS store. Yes.
0: So I was wondering about, um, in, your, in your interviews, your conversations yes. with Sophie yep. in particular, um, what their, how they may have described the change in their relationship to their artistic practice um, pre and post Patreon. Mm-hmm. You know, did, did that work become more like work I mean, did it become m- more oppressive, you know, as, uh, as Serfi sort of became a kind of neoliberal yeah. worker, artistic worker?
1: So, yes. So in one of our interviews, Serfi was, again, going back to that virality slide, saying it was my now or never moment. But Surfy has always wanted to, in my presentation, they said like, oh, I wanna be hired by Niantic full time. They know who I am, they know I do Pokemon Go fan art. They're not shutting me down yet, so maybe they'll hire me full time. Still hasn't happened, but they did for the YouTubers instead. But more so, Surfy, when not getting paid, was saying like, oh, I was still doing, like it was a second job essentially, like, but I wasn't getting paid for it. And now that I have Patreon, I'm getting paid for it, and I get to hold down a second job that I love but I still can't really improve and I can't give up my software development because I'm not willing to take that risk that many influencers do, leaving their previous jobs, leaving school. So back when I showed uh, the person who was sponsored by my mom's credit card, Mystic7, I think went from full-time to part-time in school. Um, so thinking about what people are willing to give up and then what, pe- what security uh, blankets maybe people aren't willing to give up. Surfy wasn't to make that leap unless They were like, let's say they got on the Ellen show or if Oprah was still doing her show. Then Surfy was like, yeah, I would leave software development and I would do fan art, I would do artwork full time because it's something I'm really passionate about. I love both of these equally. I'm happy doing both jobs, but I would leave one if I knew I can like make a living off of just art. Uh, Let's go. One, two, three. Yep, you're first.
3: Mind-blowing. I'm curious, so Sufi's clearly developed some some serious skills. She whipped in macros for reversing image to get a sense of the symmetry of the face. Like, there's a lot she's doing that they're doing? Uh, I don't know. I guess the gender part. Yep. Right on. So they're doing a lot of serious work. I guess I'm wondering why choose fan art rather than just, They're clearly doing sort of independent uh, comic work. Yeah. They've created a unique character already. Like, why not just create the full cast and somersault into the universe, uh, sell comics to fans, et cetera?
1: Uh, one, okay, two things there. So, Surfy built up an audience prior to Pokemon Go based on Naruto uh, fan art as well, so, had a small audience until that viral post that I showed. And then two, Cerfri, again, getting back to your question, is not really comfortable and is also very much located in the Philippines. And really, there aren't as many, they go to many local artist conventions and give out their products there, give out their cards there. But again, to me, has said to me that I don't think I can make a full-time living off of this. I don't think if I publish the full, let's say, comic, that people would be willing to buy it. Although many US and European fans have said yes, we would, but then there is still an initial cost that surfing might not be willing to invest in. And I think that's where a certain geopolitical location there, like I've built up all of these relationships over time, and if I make one slip up or one miscalculated investment, that'll all go down the drain, and then I won't be able to do something I love as much. I think you had a question? Yes. Yeah.
4: Um, I'm a visiting scholar from Hong Kong, uh, i also a Pokemon Go player and uh, uh, the first well, I have two questions actually. Uh, so the first question I, I really uh, want to know more like how you uh, define um, fans in, in, in your study like um, one is of course is the Pokemon fans they might grew up with uh, Pokemon culture. On the other hand, we have a Pokemon Go player, um, mm-hmm. say, um, because uh, I, I have many colleagues, uh, friends, uh, they also play Pokemon Go. Um, some of them actually are in their 20s or 30s, they, they grew up with Pokemon go, uh, culture. Yeah. But we definitely know we have a lot of other generations uh, uh, my generation, or even older, some retired grandma, yeah. grandpa, they, they play Pokemon, go even more <laughs> enthusiastically than, than their grandkids. So um, uh, uh so in your study, mostly focus on Pokemon fans, uh, but lot Pokemon go player, mm-hmm. isn't it? Or or you actually want to, uh. Uh, uh, covers some Pokemon Go players. Is uh, so that because sometimes it uh, with Pokemon Go players, but in turn, they go back to Pokemon stories and all the culture because that day is something like the, the circulation of the ecosystem of, of the media, right? Uh,
1: so, for that question, I define fans of my studies particularly by who follows and who have continually followed. Uh, maybe play or played, so either present or past tense, um, Pokemon Go. And particularly follow particular content producers or influencers or micro-celebrities that I have studied throughout my like two-year uh, period. Uh, more so, I focus much more on the content producers and how they build the relationship with their fans and their inner workings more so. So like Surfy and how like all this unpaid time went into building up a webcomic because there were support by their audience and since it's Tumblr, most of their audience was mostly anonymous and then more so than on Patreon where it's more exclusive access and then people are able to keep their like are able to get like unique or not unique but personalized content, very much so personalized and then going to the YouTubers it's more so based on the people who comment um during in my data sets there are very times people who obviously are trolls and comments just saying like people still play this game dead game dead game or and then there are also people who are like i love your content i love how you provide like capturing this pokemon like in a place that i've never learned i learned so much about the culture we can also talk about like how bell hooks would argue maybe especially coming from presumably white people that's very much in eating the other experience where they're able to engage in other cultures but not actually learn about the lessons or about the fraud histories of said cultures or the violences that one might be enacting by setting foot let's say into india to capture a pokemon so that's another subject but for me it's much more about how the content producers the influencers micro celebrities are interacting with their fans less so the fans interacting with pokemon go Originally, I did have a chapter in my dissertation about the people who are playing Pokemon Go, but I was told to cut that for time, and also because I would like to finish in five years. So. <laughs> but thats I think that's a very valid point in the sense that there is so much that still can be done, like how are fans of Pokemon Go interacting in different ecosystems or in different generations because we we have there's this there was this viral video I want to say about a year or so ago of this grandpa who still plays Pokemon Go and has like six to eight iPhones out on their bicycle in order to capture multiple Pokemon. In order to get rid of the social aspect, plays by themselves because you can't do a gym raid usually with one or two people for the hard ones. You need like five to six people. You have one grandpa with about six to eight phones, so able just to tap really well with both hands on six phones at once. So it's pretty impressive. But yeah, so thinking about that play, I think th- yeah, <laughs> I, I think that's a very like good study that can be done like in the near future as well. Was that both of your questions or just one? Uh, yeah. I, okay.
4: Uh, but probably I like go back to my second question later. Okay. Is, yeah. <laughs>
3: Um, yeah, my my question is it keeps changing in my head, so it's not it's maybe two or one and a half. Which, um, so I'm curious about like the like how you frame this, the micro celebrity argument. So I first came across that term. Um, I want to see what's up to he talking about um, like the Arab Spring and like these sort of journalists, like kind of from a journalist social. Um, uh, uh, perspective and so I'm, I'm curious about the relation like one how you're framing it within your argument sort of micro celebrity as it relates to um, work and then to, like uh, the labor element and do you, did you do you go into sort of Henry Jenkins work on like um, you know like convergence culture because I'm really interested in terms of like like is there a social element to like social good I guess you could say element to this um, or And is there some level of, I don't know, social responsibility? Like, does do Surfie get into politics? And, like, is it's essentially, is there a responsibility that comes with that micro-celebrity um, as you're seeing it? Are you studying that at all? And then the second part of that regarding labor, like, because even watching that video, and I've seen, I, I'm a big fan of Miraculous Ladybug, if you watch that. And so people make all this, like, fan fiction of the new people, you know, new sort of, characters and so it almost felt like a new art form because essentially you're watching someone screen capture sped up to like mm-hmm. a music you know music yeah. so are you looking at that as its own sort of new art form that is related to like I need to share something with my fans let me screen capture then cut it to Michael Buble or whatever. That
1: <laughs> well I think so pretty much I'll target the second question first like that idea a lot I think I should revise my chapter based on that because thinking of new art forms besides just a strategy I think that could be also another section within the third strategy I talk about more so uh, like how the speed painting can actually be a new art form it's become very popular across like like in many MMOs or many like animes etc of like favorite characters people will speed paint And that's become a really big sensation in, like, I want to say, the last two years or so on YouTube. Um, But and also, like, I think people still post them on Tumblr. Uh, But more so, I do like how because Surfy did mention, like, especially for Showtime, like this was set to music, but also that trying to find the music and then speeding it up to the right proportion that it would match certain scenes in the music, so like Sway or like whatever, like matching up certain music and in the other one it was much more upbeat like and we run and Matching certain like scenes like the bloody nose and that clip that I didn't show like so that is very much I will, probably would say a new art form and that's something I really want to look into because I'm working my head around that right now. So thank you for that uh, Getting back to your first part I do frame it um, This part did fall outside of my data collection so it's going to be part of my epilogue or conclusion of my dissertation but the tumblr adult content ban is two where we see the micro celebrity become extremely political and extremely transmedia oriented so that's where i really draw from henry jenkins work as well as some feminist media studies scholars like laurie Olette and Sarah sabonet weiser and to really think about like in order to save one's brand that is being targeted by new policies, but also coupled with st- state-sanctioned policies, like just a like moral panic around like not safe for work art or, or sex work, for instance. But more so with Surfy, looking at the the only time they were political before the Tumblr ban was for the twenty sixteen election, saying like I feel bad for you guys, but we have the same problem in the Philippines. You'll be fine. Don't worry about it. That, because Surfy says, like, I don't like to be political here. This is a space for feel goods. And I think when one is a micro-celebrity, it really bases on what are the asks that you are receiving in your Tumblr, what are the questions or comments you're receiving to gauge what's your audience, if they want political interaction or not. And Surfy really has stayed away from political commentary barring um, the election in 2016. Um, but also more so there's an active, and I would say across the board, the YouTube influencers also were not political until they became sponsored by Niantic, where I think they knew they had backing outside of their audience. They had backing by the corporation when then they started saying like, gun violence in the US, this is ridiculous. There needs to be gun law reforms. But before that, it was pretty much radio silence on that end too. So I think the political aspect, it depends on the level of fame achieved and in knowing um, how your audience would really interact with that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. And then for the transmedia aspect, this is much more so true post Tumblr adult content ban. Anyone who might be unfamiliar with it, December 17, 2018, Tumblr enacted a uh, content adult content ban, so Uh, Pretty much quote-unquote female presenting nipples or any kind of nudity any pornography was pretty much censored and clotured from tumblr Uh, This post actually so they showed a clip from this this was actually seen as to This content was uh, flagged and had to be appealed the appeal was denied so it was taken down from Surfie's tumblr so as well as uh, Several other photos that I showed throughout were taken down from their tumblr because it was showing too much cleavage regardless of gender but more so, that's when we see uh, that they're still on Tumblr, but now they're on Twitter posting their content, because Twitter doesn't care as
0: much. So. time for one more question. OK, thank you.
1: Misty, yes.
2: Uh, first, thank you for such a lovely and fun and provocative talk. And I appreciate you bringing your story into the talk as well. And it just always adds another layer. Uh, a comment and a question. One, I found this demonstration at the end just kind of really uniquely and wonderfully um, encapsulated that bit that you shared with us about Ahmed. I think it kind of confirmed that actually how affects kind of layer and stick in and then circulate. So I thought that may be a fun bit to hold on to as you continue to write. Um, I was curious about the implications uh, for, perhaps, emerging content producers. I I love this term, um, the gig economy, right? Yeah. So I'm curious, especially along racialized and gender dynamics that you brought up in the beginning, what might be some type of implications for emerging content producers in terms of being able to maybe produce some type of sustainable um, living for themselves or not? What have you noticed in that area?
1: Um, For me, it goes... Um, what I've really noticed there, not so much with Surfy, but more so with the YouTube influencers, where they'll give shoutouts to people who are more on the lower level scale, where there was this person who wanted to quit producing Pokemon Go content because they only had maybe a thousand or two thousand views each video, but then they, um, I know Reversal and Mystic7 gave a shoutout saying like, you should really visit this guy's channel, and then because uh, he was I'm forgetting if he was based also in the Philippines or was based I'm blanking on where he was based, but he was based outside the US and Europe. But then like his content did get a weak boost, but then not so much. So it feels very one hap that's fine. It feels very happenstance where by chance uh, if you go viral and if you're able to capitalize it based on being everyday, being exceptional, being able to provide exclusive content then you're really able to maintain your status as like an influencer or a rising, uh, let's say, internet celebrity. But then if you're trying to break into the market and you're not going viral and you're trying to latch on by saying, because in every one of Mystic 7 or Pokemon Master Holly's videos, it's like, visit my channel as well. And I think many of us have seen that in many YouTube comment sections. Not many people really click the links. The videos aren't monetized in the same way. They're not backed by a corporation. So, it becomes very hard to break into the industry once it has set up who is an influencer or who is a celebrity already. So, even though with the good-heartedness of like, you can make Pokemon Go content too, this is how you make it and then become popular, which um, all of those people who I've mentioned have said, no one really knew has really emerged on the market or on the scene for Pokemon Go. And I think that's across, like across the, I think, yeah, like across regions, but also across genres, like if we, let's say there was like a big Digimon craze, or let's say there was a big, I don't know, like if Harry Potter, like Wizards Unite AR game actually comes out then like, or if it did, I don't know, uh, then maybe there'll be a new, it's about who really emerges during a particular phenomenon. No problem. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you again for the question.